0: Good morning. You guys doing okay? Everybody good? Good? (laughs) So I have a story for you guys. I should have told it last week. It would have made a lot more sense for me to tell it last week because it was kind of pertinent to to some of the lesson. If you weren't here last week, one of the things we talked about towards the end of the lesson is is the the difference between kind of universal obedience, which means if the Bible says that it's for absolutely everyone and we we do what the Lord says because these are universal kind of standards standards, all people, And then we talked about personal conviction, that there are sometimes things that God may call us as individuals to that he may not call other people to. And the example I used is, is I cannot show you anywhere in the Bible where it says it's a sin to drink alcohol. Of course, it's a sin to get drunk, but it's not a sin to drink alcohol. But I said last week I have a personal conviction. God has given me a personal conviction about drinking alcohol, so I don't do that. So again, I should have told you this story last week. But a couple of weeks ago, I was at a buddy. He also comes to church here. He said I could tell this story, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep him and his family nameless just to pr- protect their reputation here a little bit. So um, so I was at his house. I've got a couple of old cars. He's got a couple of old cars. We have some other guys here that have some old cars, and us guys who are getting old with our old cars get together, and we, we work on them together sometimes. That's what old, old guys do. So... Um, we're over at his house. I've been good friends with he and his family for a long time, and it was about dinner time. They have a couple of kids, and his wife came out and said, Hi, hey, Corey, you know, we come eat dinner with us. I, I have some lettuce and a grilled cheese. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I have lettuce and grilled cheese for you." Oh, hi, and um, and so we go in and, and we eat dinner together, and it was really really nice. And and on our way back out to the garage, uh, my buddy who will remain nameless says, "Hey, um, he's got a fridge in his garage." He goes grab you a soda, you know? And I usually don't drink a whole lot of soda. I was like, sure, I'll have a soda. And so I I opened up the the fridge and there's a Diet Dr. Pepper in there because that's what old hot rod guys drink, right? Very masculine drink. So I grabbed a Diet Dr. Pepper and I'm going to, to walk to our cars, crack it open, throw back the Diet Dr. Pepper, drink about half of it in one quick guzzle. Something is wrong with the Diet Dr. Pepper. It doesn't taste like Diet Dr. Pepper. And then I look and turn around and it is a hard seltzer. So for the first time in 20-something years, I consumed at least, you know, six ounces of alcohol very, very quickly and realized that. And he's off in the corner buckled over laughing. And I'm trying to spit this out on his garage floor because it tastes terrible to me. And the whole thing is captured with his security camera. So he (laughs) So he, he sends it to me later on. And I think it's funnier because you can't hear anything. You just see it, like an old silent film. You know, the spitting, the the laughing in the corner. It's fantastic, so. Anyways, you're welcome. And I I said, God, it's it's not a sin if I thought it was Diet Dr. Pepper, right? So, at least I hope Not. not, all right. So we are working through the book of 1 Samuel. We've been going through this for a couple of months now. We, we finished up, we did chapter nine last week and about half of chapter 10. And where we're at, if you haven't been with us, uh, the book of Samuel centers around primarily two different individuals. There are other ones that are extremely important, but primarily focuses on Samuel, who is a prophet, and Saul, who is going to be the first king of the Jewish people, the first king of the Israelites. And in chapter nine and in the beginning of chapter 10, not only is Saul told about God's plan by Samuel that he's going to be king, he is anointed with oil. We see kind of this string of very, very weird circumstances that God puts in order and it just solidifies to Saul that he has been chosen. What we talked about last week were four things that are very important for all of us in whatever stage of our journey that we are in, and it is that we must be searching, asking questions. We must surround ourselves with good people. We must listen, and we must obey. We talked about these four things last week. What we're going to talk about this week, we're going to finish up chapter 10. We're going to do chapter 11, which is extremely short. And we're going to see Saul not only officially chosen in front of the people, we're also gonna see Saul be tested for the first time and see how he handles that. And what we're gonna talk about because at the end of chapter 11, they're gonna make a peace offering. And we're gonna talk about all kinds of things that, that we as Christians should display in our life. But we're also gonna talk about that it is impossible to display the things of God unless we are at peace with God. We're gonna talk about how we make peace with God, okay? That's where we're gonna to, to land today, hopefully so you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything I'm going to say will be in there. Everything will be up on the the big screen. If you have a Bible, we're in the Old Testament. uh, I think it's the ninth book of the Old Testament. We're in 1 Samuel. We'll do a little bit of chapter 10, all of chapter 11. We'll get through it really, really quick. And if you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, just click on Sermon Notes and you got everything right there. Okay. Good to see you guys. Um, Let's pray. Let's dive into this. this, And this chapter and a half brings up a a couple of really interesting points that we'll talk about, okay? Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you so much, God, that this is a, a, a church, a community, Lord, where we can laugh a little bit, we can joke around, and we can also get serious, Lord, and, and worship and break open your word and read it and study it, and so, God, we just thank you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We pray that as we study it and read it, Lord, that it's a blessing to us. God, we pray not only for our church, we pray for every single church in our city, we pray for our other campuses, the churches in those cities, Lord, and we just pray that as we do what we're about to do, God, that, that it honors you, that it blesses you, God, that it brings us closer to you. We love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll break it up into three parts, guys, okay? Let me read a little bit, and we'll go back and uh, we'll talk about it. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the Israelites... This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel out of Egypt and rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, you must set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your clans. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then they had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they couldn't find him. They again inquired of the Lord, "'Has the man come here yet?' And the Lord replied, "'There he is, hidden among the supplies.'" They ran and got him from there, and when he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. Samuel said to the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There was no one like him among the entire population, and all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people home. Saul also went to his home in Gabeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift, but Saul said nothing. Okay, the first thing is this. So what was happening is... Saul had already been anointed by Samuel. We read in the last chapter, God had already touched Saul's heart, but no one knew any of this yet really, except for Samuel and Saul. So Samuel, the prophet calls all the Israelites to an area called Mizpah, which is about eight miles outside of modern day Jerusalem. He brings them all together and he officially declares Saul is going to be your king. Now look, before he does this, and this is very, very important. I hope you guys see this, very important. Before he, he announces who the king is going to be, Samuel says, okay, God is about to show us who the king is. But before I do that, and before God does that, God wants me to remind you that it is God that delivered us from captivity. It was God that delivered us from our afflictions and troubles. It was God that delivered us from the Egyptians and the oppressive nations around us. It wasn't a man, it wasn't a woman, it was God. But today, you are rejecting God by choosing to follow a human more more diligently than you follow God. I just want everyone to soak that up for a second. So by selecting an earthly leader, they are rejecting their heavenly leader. So though God had already chosen who was going to be king, Samuel went through a process to to prove to the people that, that he wasn't the one doing it, it was God doing it. And this is a very, very interesting thing. And we see this a couple of times in the Bible, but there's not a whole lot of information about this. Sometimes the priests would carry on their clothing a couple of stones. They would carry several different stones. Two of them, though, were called the Urim and the Thummim. And these two stones, one was black, one was white. They were were kind of the equivalent of modern-day dice. They would have different colors. They would have things written on each side. And what they would do is when they were seeking God's will, they would cast these stones... That's so why you see all throughout the Bible casting these lots. They would cast these stones, and whatever the stones told them, they took that as a sign from God to move in that direction. So, what would happen was Samuel lined up the 12 tribes, cast the, these two stones. All right, it's the tribe of Benjamin, step forward. Okay, of all the men in Benjamin, rolls up. And then, okay, this clan, step forward. Now, of this clan, roll it again Saul is our guy. There is very little mentioned about this, but we have to be very careful with this, and here's where we're going with this. There is a normative way by which throughout the entire Bible that God speaks to his people. It is typically through prayer, it is through the word of God, and it is to listening to God in prayer and through reading his word. That is the normative way that you and I will hear from God. There are also anomalies in the Bible. Some very bizarre ones. This is kind of one of them. In the Old Testament, there's a time that a guy hits his donkey and his donkey turns around by the power of God and says, why do you keep hitting me? That's an anomaly. That doesn't happen every day, right? And so where we have to be careful, though there are anomalies in the Old Testament, there's even some pretty bizarre anomalies in the New Testament. Like when Jesus, instead of walking up to the blind man and just being like, hey, "You know, hey, buddy, you're healed, go on. You know, spits on the, the dirt, rubs it on his face. Now we can speculate as to why he did that, but we have to believe that God knew why. And that, that, that maybe this blind man, because blind people have a tendency to lean more on their touch and their other senses because they don't have the sense of sight, maybe Jesus knew that he needed to feel something in order to kind of activate his faith Maybe the people in the Old Testament had to see miraculous signs like the, 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 the Urim and the thumum happen because they didn't have access to the Holy Spirit the way that we do post the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that we have access to the Holy Spirit. So again, God knows, but we have to be careful. So if we pick out these anomalies from the Bible, you know, like if you're sitting around like not acting because you're like, well, a donkey hasn't told me to yet. That's not the normative way by which God communicates to his people, okay? So they go through this process. It eventually ends up on Saul, who is known as an impressive, good-looking, strapping young man that's a head taller than everyone else. Saul, you're our king. Where is Saul, right? No one knows where he is. And they start to look around and they find out that Saul is hiding behind the luggage that kept the supplies for the armies. And so once he finally comes out, I'm pretty sure that Samuel is being very sarcastic. So this man who has chosen to be king because they wanted a king, comes out because he's too afraid to face the public. And Samuel goes, here he is. This is the one the Lord has chosen for you as king. There's no one like him amongst all the population. I imagine that Samuel going, wait a second. So this is who, this is the incompetent man that you're trusting more than God. Look at this. Doesn't this seem foolish? I think is what Samuel is getting at in that moment. So there are some good lessons to be learned in this situation. And there is some foreshadowing in this situation. So we learn first that looks can be deceiving. Even if someone looks impressive, even if someone is attractive, even if someone is a charismatic speaker, even if they're beautiful, that doesn't mean that they're godly, and it doesn't mean that they're a good leader. Looks can be deceiving. We also understand that that heroism, right, being heroic, differs from man's opinion to God's opinion, and we're going to see that in King David. No one would have picked David, but God picked David. Because God sees something different than what we see. What we're also going to learn is this. There is foreshadowing in the fact that Saul's fear and Saul's inconsistency with God is going to be Saul's downfall. So we have to learn to trust in the abilities of God more than the abilities and ways of man. And that is very simple, but we forget it many times. So Samuel listed off the different responsibilities and the rights of the king. And if you weren't here for chapter eight, you can go back and read what the king is entitled to. And he was warning them with this, but he wrote it down. He said he put it in the presence of the Lord. That probably means he put it with the Ark of the Covenant. Saul, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel sent everyone home. All right, everybody, we're done, go home. Saul goes home and there's a group of brave men that go home with Saul, almost like secret service, you know, security for him. These are the mighty men of valor that we will read about later. But these brave men who are called by God to serve God and now they're here to protect and serve the king. He was also met with criticism. There were wicked men that were were saying negative things about Saul, but it says that Saul held his tongue. So what we see here is this, and I think I put, yeah, leadership, life draws this. I put leadership draws praise and criticism. Listen, just life draws praise and criticism. All of you in this room will experience praise and all of you in this room will experience criticism. The question is not if we will experience these things. The question is how will we handle these things? How will we handle the compliments? How will we handle the criticism? Will we react well and will we pick our battles wisely? The older I get, the more I realize there are some things that just aren't worth my time. And I don't mean that to sound arrogant. The Bible says, don't throw your pearls amongst pigs. That means there are some people who just wanna get messy and get in the mud. And if you're a believer who's been washed clean by the blood of Christ, I don't wanna get in the mud. I've been made clean. So there are some arguments that aren't worth your time. There are some offenses that you just need to get over and not be so offended by. There are some things that we just don't need to spend that time with, okay? So Nahash the Ammonite came up and laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. Nahash the Ammonite replied, look at this, I'll make a treaty with you on this condition that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all Israel. Don't do anything to us for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him, and let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we'll surrender. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to the people, everyone wept aloud. Just then, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen. What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired. And they repeated to him the words of the men from Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, this is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they went out united. Saul counted them at Bezek. or Bezek. There were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who had come, Tell this to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. Just so you know, the sun is always hot. This probably meant around noon. So, So the messengers told the men of Jabesh and they rejoiced. Then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, tomorrow we will come out and you can do whatever you want to us. The next day... Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch, they invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. We're gonna talk about something interesting here in a second. Okay, so any of you who have ever gotten a promotion at your work, have been given a, a, you know, a job above someone else or something like that, you know almost the first thing that happens is someone challenges you. So Saul is made the first king. And what do you know? Someone comes out of the woodwork and they want to challenge his authority. They wanted to challenge his authority by attacking a little neighboring community, kind of east of Jordan. And they were gonna come in and attack this group of people. So at first, the men of Jabesh, they come out to this guy, Nahash, who's going to attack them. And they say, hey, look, we don't wanna fight. You can come in, you can have the city, and and we'll serve. We'll work under you. We don't want to fight. But here's the thing. Nahash didn't, didn't want to just conquer. He wanted to humiliate. He was trying to prove a point. So he has a very, very disturbing stipulation. He says, all right, if you surrender, I'll let you surrender, but I get to gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate Israel. That's pretty sadistic when you think about it. That's pretty dark. So their response was because they didn't want their right eye gouged out is they said give us a week to come up with something. Give us a week, we're going to contact the neighboring areas, we're going to contact the other cities and communities in Israel and see if anyone will help us and if no one is willing to help us, we will surrender. Now imagine that. This is the position they are in. They're saying if no one comes to our rescue, if no one helps us address, if no one helps us address this evil, we, we will we will let you gouge our eyes out. That's what they are saying at this point. So here's where we get into something interesting. As the messengers came to Saul's hometown and started telling people about this, the people wept. I think we can assume they wept because at that point they they were just giving up. Oh, these people are gonna get, these awful things are going to happen. They weren't even willing to fight at this point. They were just giving up. They were weeping. Look at this awful thing that's happening to this community over here. But when the news got to Saul, look at this. It says the spirit of God came powerfully on Saul and he burned, burned with righteous anger. He burned furiously, it says, with anger. You know what we learned from this? There are times when the people of God need to get angry. And now some of you say, well, that doesn't sound like Jesus to me, then you haven't read the New Testament. There are times when Jesus would see injustice and he would get furious at it. There was a time when Jesus was making a whip in the corner of the temple courtyard. You make whips to whip things. And he did. A bunch of people, as he ran them out of the temple courtyard, because church had become more of a business than a place of spiritual formation and that made him mad. There's a time when he calls a woman a viper. There's a time when he said some very ugly things to the religious people who are oppressing others and taking advantage of them. We see all throughout the Bible times that God gets angry, and I would make a pretty good argument that one of the problems with the Western church, right, And I'm talking about us, right? Not not you, but I'm talking about where we live. One of the problems is is we have failed to let brutality and unrepented sin make us upset. And it needs to make us upset. Now, again, it's how we deal with that that is important. Anger is not a sin. I would say there is a time for righteous anger as we're seeing right here, but it's how we deal with those injustices, with that brutality, with that sin. We are not to return evil with evil, the Bible says. We are to return it with the truth. We are to return it with prayer. We are to return it with love. The Bible says we fight not against flesh and blood, but against evil forces, against principalities. So we lean on God more. We love people. We share the truth but we have to sometimes get upset and bothered by the things that are happening around us. Now look at this, look at this. So what Saul does, he's mad. He takes some of his oxen, he chops them up into pieces and sends them out to these neighboring communities. Imagine sitting there, right? You get, you know, your FedEx package shows up. It's a huge ox leg. And you get it and there's a note on it. Hey, if you don't stand, listen, listen to me. If you don't stand up and fight this evil with me, the same thing is going to happen to your ox. Now listen, this isn't, like Saul wasn't pulling like a Don Corleone type intimidation thing here. I don't believe all the older people are like, yeah. I don't, I don't believe that's what Saul was doing. What Saul was trying to say is this. Man, I need you guys to hear me right now. Saul was saying to the nation, that even though the evil is not in your neighborhood, even though it's in another community, even though it may be far away, if we don't address that evil, that evil that's in the distance is eventually going to come and it's going to affect your home. Man, I hope someone heard me. We tend to not care unless it's in our backyard. And I hate to tell some of you, the more that we neglect that evil that is in the distance, eventually one day you're gonna wake up And it's going to be on your front porch and it's going to be in your home and it's going to be with your children and it's going to affect your livelihood and it's going to affect your marriage. So what Saul was saying is this, here's this chunk of an ox, right? If we don't address that evil that is in the distance, they're going to do this to your ox. They're going to do this to your marriage. They're going to do this to your home. They're going to take your kid's eyes. They're going to come and get us next. And there should be a healthy level of fear when the people of God fail to address the injustice and evil in the world around us. There should be a fear of the Lord that we have when we do not address the evil that is in the world around us. And we stand up for truth and we stand up for biblical justice. We also learn that Saul was a pretty good military strategist. He has 330,000 men. That's a pretty good sized army. He breaks them up into three different groups. He attacks Nahash from every different angle. And it says he slaughtered them until the heat of the day. And this kind of proved to the people, Saul has been chosen by God. So here's what we see. We see that good leaders protect the innocent. <laughs> good leaders protect the innocent. Good leaders hate evil. Listen, we don't hate evil people, but we hate the actions of evil people. We hate the thoughts of evil people. We don't hate them. It is a sign of spiritual maturity that we can look at someone that's living in opposition to God, and we do not, we do not look at their value, and, and, and we do not limit our love based on what they do or what they say or what they think. We have to look past that Amen. and understand that these people are still loved by God, and we have to give them every, every single opportunity to give their life to God. Good leaders protect the innocent. They hate evil. And good leaders, mom, dad, good leaders don't just shoot at the hip. They pray and they strategically make decisions for the people that are following them. We strategically make decisions. Let's talk a little bit more about leadership. Last part. Afterward, the people said to Samuel, who said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so we can kill them. But Saul ordered, no one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let's go to Gilgal so we can renew the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there in the Lord's presence they made Saul king. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So after Saul's first victory, after this, this overwhelming victory he had in Jabesh, some of the people who, who they, they, they were pro-Saul, right, before the war, they came up to Samuel and they said, hey, let's find those guys who were anti-Saul and let's kill them. And this was a knee-jerk reaction. They thought because Saul had won, listen, one time, that everything's going to be good. He's the best. We're all going to be awesome. This is going to be a fantastic experience. And that was a very foolish thing to do because you cannot judge the success of one person on one action. A trademark of good leadership is consistency. And it takes time to see consistency. It's the worst example ever, and I'm afraid to share this with you because, you know, people don't like this. But I'm not a big football fan, but, but I've always been a Patriots fan. And I've always liked Tom Brady. And um, okay, I only got a couple of boos there. And so I've been, you know, I've always followed Tom Brady's career. I was actually a Patriots fan before him. I was a big Drew so fan. Anyways, I, I, I always liked Tom Brady. I always liked the Patriots. I remember the first Super Bowl that Patrick Mahomes won. And I have nothing against him because I just don't care that much about things. But I remember Sports Illustrated did a cover thing after his first Super Bowl win, Patrick Mahomes. And they said, is Mahomes the greatest of all time? And I was sitting there thinking, okay, you have one guy that's been to 10 Super Bowls. You have one guy that has won one Super Bowl. Now that's a big deal to win the Super Bowl, but, but, but he hasn't had time. He may be the greatest one day, but he hasn't had time to prove his consistency. And, and Tom Brady has. It is very foolish to, to have these knee jerk reactions. Oh, there's a victory. He must be the best. That's foolish. There hasn't been time to determine if he is truly the greatest of all time. There's consistency that matters. And consistency is similar to faithfulness. See, if we we judge things based on one win, listen, here's the thing, a broken clock is right twice a day, right? Some of you are gonna get halfway home and that's gonna hit you, and you're gonna go, that guy is brilliant. The hands on the clock, 24 hours, twice a day, makes sense. (laughs) but there has to be consistency and consistency is similar to faithfulness because here's the thing, the Jewish people are going to have more crises that were gonna come up and he hasn't won those yet. And as we continue on through the book of Samuel, we're gonna see that Saul is not a consistent leader, therefore not a good leader. So listen, this may be the most important paragraph. I'm not kidding. This may be the most important paragraph that we talk about today. If we expect, expect to be led by God through crisis, crises, because you guys are gonna go through troubles, right? Jesus told us we would, we would go through troubles. He assured us. You guys are gonna go through hard times. We cannot expect to be led by God if we are living in opposition to God and we're not faithful to God. We, 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 we cannot expect to be led by God through crisis, lead our family or be the light of Christ to the lost if we lack faithfulness and if we lack consistency. Let me tell you what that means. Coming to church once a month isn't enough. Do you know the average Christian in the United States goes to church once a month? Well, Corey, we're so busy. I don't argue that you're busy. I just think you're busy with the wrong things. If we only pray for our children when they're sick, that's not consistent. We have to be consistently praying with our children, for our children, for our spouse, right? We just need to be consistent in prayer in general, not just when times are tough or when we got nothing else to do, we have to be consistent. We have to be consistent with the word of God. We have to be faithful to these things. We cannot expect to see the faithfulness of God if we reject to be faithful ourselves. We cannot do that. It's not that God doesn't love us, but God is a God of consistency. And the people of God should be people of consistency because we should be emulating God. God is the same yesterday, today, forever. He's consistent. He's constant. And I think the reason why we see the church falling apart in the United States, and I think the reason why we see a lot of professing Christians who are not seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the things of God more is because we lack faithfulness. We lack consistency. And we have to be consistent. Saul also responds with mercy. Hey, let's let's take vengeance on your critics Saul? And Saul goes, no, 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 we're not going to take vengeance today. We're not going to kill anyone today. He'll try to kill some critics later, but not today. And so what we learn is this. Mercy is another key element of good leadership. Do you want to know where mercy comes from? Mercy comes from a good theological understanding that we have been shown great grace and mercy by God. We are not just to be recipients of the grace and mercy of God. We are to be distributors of the grace and mercy of God because the real Christian understands that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we understand that, we treat people with more mercy. We treat people with more grace. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be accountability. I'm not saying that there isn't time for judgment. But the Bible says that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we are to be merciful people. Why? Because we all fall short. We all need grace. And the real Christian understands that any success we have is because God has graciously given it to us. So we need to be merciful. We need to be gracious. So Samuel and the people, they go to Gilgal. They offer sacri- uh, they offer fellowship offerings, which which the Bible also calls them peace offerings. And peace offerings were made typically for three reasons. One to thank God for him providing for their needs, Also, sometimes these offerings were made if someone made a promise to God, uh, like going back to the beginning of of 1 Samuel, uh, Hannah made a promise to God. And so if you make a promise and you fulfill it, you make this offering and you're at peace with God. And then the last reason they would do this is to celebrate deliverance. If God had delivered them from, and that's what had happened just in this case. He delivered them in this battle. They were victorious. And so they give a peace offering to God. We'll get back to this here in a second. First thing we need to talk about is this. In this life, you will receive praise and you'll receive criticism. And the more responsibility that we accept in this life, the more praise we will receive. And unfortunately, the more criticism we will receive as well. The question is, what do we do with these two things? The first thing is this, when we are praised, we must remain humble in that. We remain humble in times of praise by knowing, again, that any success we have, it's ultimately because God has allowed us to have it. Amen. Now, being humble doesn't mean we have to be self-deprecating all the time. It is still humble if someone says, hey, you did a really good job. It's, it's humble to say, well, you know, thank you. I, I worked really hard on that and I appreciate. It's okay to accept those compliments. But we have to understand that anything good we have is ultimately from the Lord. So that keeps us humble in times of praise. We also need to be merciful in times of critique. Gracious in times... Sometimes it's just best to keep our mouths shut. And that leads to the next one. That we need to learn to hold our tongues. Do you know the Bible says that only the Holy Spirit of God can tame the tongue? Do you know what that means? When our tongue is out of control, we are not full of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying that we are lacking something. We are, we are a little too distant. And whenever people go, well, this thing came out of me and I just don't know where it came from. The Bible tells us exactly where it came from. Out of the abundance of the heart, we speak. And so whenever these ugly things come out, whenever this vitriol or words that we shouldn't say come out, it was here. It was here. And we need to make sure that the spirit is here so those things don't come out. That's how the tongue is tamed. We also need to pick our battles wisely. As this church has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, I'll tell you what the hardest thing about my job, not the hardest thing, but it's, it's something that's irritating. If someone does publicly critique me because I'm a pastor, I can't defend myself. You just have to take it. So if someone gets on a... a Years ago, there was, a, there was a really bad Google review and it was pointed towards me that someone came in, they wanted money, we didn't give them money. The reason why we didn't give them money is because they just got out of jail for viciously beating their wife. Now, none of that is on the Google review. It just says, this church doesn't help people. They're stingy. We're a stingy church, guys. Stingy. You know, it's all about just the pastor getting rich. All this stuff, right? If you laugh at that, that kind of hurts my feelings a little bit that you just... By looking at me, assume anyways. <laughs> but the problem is, is that I can't get on Google and defend myself. I just can't do that because it just opens up the can, right? So so here's the thing: we, we just have to learn to pick our battles wisely. Do you know what I've learned, and maybe this will help some of you. If someone is critical of you, if someone is gossiping about you or backbiting or slandering you, step back and ask yourself this question about that individual. Who is listening to them? Amen. Who is their audience? It goes back to that principle of you don't want to cast your pearls before swine. I'm not trying to call people pigs, but what Jesus is saying in the gospel is, do not waste, you are precious, you are valuable. If you're in the right, don't waste your time and your energy on getting into the mud with these people. Now, all of this is only possible by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that stuff is possible. Like Saul, We are also, when we see the oppression and evil in the world, it should make us angry. You know something that should make more Christians angry? I'm gonna use an example, pornography. That should make us angry. Do you know that pornography in the United States is an $18 billion a year industry? That's three times larger than the NBA. It's bigger than the NFL. It's bigger than the MLB. I think it's bigger than all those things combined. And it doesn't upset us us that much. It degrades women. It belittles people. It objectifies men. it's, It's one of the number one reasons for divorce in America. I'm sorry to talk like an adult today. It's one of the leading causes of erectile dysfunction. So the sex life of married people is broken down because of it. There's a reason why you hear those commercials so often on the radio, because we have an $8 billion a year industry that is tearing people apart. But that doesn't upset us that much. We dabble around with other things. Well, Corey, I'm not looking at hardcore pornography. The actual definition of pornographic imagery or or pornography is anything that we look at that sexually arouses us. But we dabble around with it and we play with it and we joke about it. And Pornhub takes out a huge banner on Times Square and we go, wow, that, wow, look at that. And we laugh about it and it's ripping us apart. And you know what it should do? It should make us angry. If you have daughters, it should infuriate you. Amen. It should make us sick to our stomach. There should be a righteous anger that wells up in us when we have such destructive things. right? There, there, is, there is no more lucrative form of entertainment in America and that should bother us. So here's the thing. Anger is not a sin. If it were, Jesus wouldn't have gotten angry. It is what we do in that anger that can be sinful. And so we're to hate evil. We are to love what is good. The Bible says to let go of what is evil and to cling to what is good. But we must remember, justice has to be fought for by God honoring biblical means. This doesn't mean we light buildings on fire or we, or we slander people or we, those are the tactics of the devil. And the Bible says we don't, we, don't, we don't return evil with evil. We have to fight for things that are good by biblical means. We also have to remember that justice ultimately belongs to God. That means that we may not see everyone brought to justice in this life, but you can rest assured that no No evil action will go unaccounted for at the end of time. God sees it all, and everyone will answer for those things. It's not that we wish that on people, but there's comfort in that, that God will deal with it. We also talked about that two marks of a godly person or a godly leader are faithfulness and mercy. I said this earlier, I think this is the most important point of this entire lesson. Without consistency, we cannot expect to be led by God and we cannot lead people in the ways of God. Corey, I don't know why my kids are off the rails. Are they coming to church? Well, we come once a month. 25% of the time, do you pray with them? Ah, you know, if they got the flu or something, I'll pray with them. So once or twice a year, Do they come to encounter, are they in eon, do they have community? Well, when there's not a sporting event. And then we wonder why our kids aren't rooted in the Lord. We wonder why our marriages are on the rocks. We wonder why we struggle with anxiety and hopelessness. It's because we're not being faithful with a faithful God. If we will be consistent, if we will be faithful, we will see the fruit of that relationship we also have to be merciful. Listen to this. We cannot show love and grace and patience, nor can we fully experience it. If we do not show love, if we do not show mercy, the Bible, Jesus said that the, that, the, that the mercy and grace to us is limited. When we are not merciful people, God's mercy for us has a cap, a limit. But when we are living in a relationship with Jesus, when we're being faithful, and when we're showing grace and mercy to others, there is no limit to God's mercy and grace for us. We will experience more and more and more of it. Faithfulness, mercy. But here's the thing, and this paragraph is just a snapshot of everything I just said. We will not have wisdom in times of praise or criticism. We will not see justice. We will not be faithful or merciful. We will not experience faithfulness and mercy unless we make peace with God. Now listen, we don't live in Old Testament times where we follow the Levitical sacrificial rules. We don't do this anymore. That has changed since the cross. So if we're to make peace at God, how do we do it? Well, thank goodness Paul tells us in Romans chapter five. Peace with God comes through acknowledging the work of Christ on the cross. It's having faith in Jesus and what he did. Now, the first kind of knee jerk response that most people have is well, I have faith that Jesus is God and he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that. Listen, the problem with that is, is every devil in hell believes that. Faith is not just something we say, faith is something that we live out. Listen to me, and I hope you hear this. I don't care what your denomination said. I don't care what your great-grandpa said. Just the intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is does not save your soul. That's why it says in James, again, every demon in hell has an intellectual knowledge of who Jesus is, but they do not act on that knowledge. It is acting on that knowledge that creates saving faith. It is a lifestyle dedicated to the honor and love of God. It is walking in a relationship with God by praying and by living out the word. So let's be honest with ourselves this morning, okay? First is this, how do you and I handle praise? How do we handle criticism? I will be the first one to tell you I don't think I handle either one of them as well as I should, I'm, I'm kind of weird. If you, if you compliment me, I'm not, I'm not a good recipient of compliments. I, I don't become arrogant. And I don't mean that boastfully. I, I, I become weird and it almost makes me almost more insecure sometimes. You question yourself a lot. Man, am I even good enough to receive that compliment? You know, like I appreciate it, but like you start picking yourself apart. I don't know if anyone else is like that when they receive praise. And when I receive criticism, I can get a hundred emails this week saying they love the sermon. I'll get that one. And that's the only one I'll think about. And I'll let it ruin my day. And I'll let it get under my skin. And I don't know if, man, I'm just confessing to you guys. I don't know if anyone else is like this. You'll start creating a narrative in your head, right? Blow it way out of proportion. I do that with criticism. How do we do with that? Do we hate evil and love what is good? Do we hate things that are evil? Man, I'm not trying to tell you how to parent your children. Are you cautious what comes into your home? Do we hate what is evil? We don't hate evil people. We hate evil action and evil thought. And do we love what is biblical? Do we love what is righteous? Do we cling to what is good? Are we consistent? Are we faithful? Not just do we pray, do we have a prayer life? Not just do I read the Bible every once in a while when I got nothing else to do. Do we have a time that we set aside to read the word? Do we pray with our children? Do we pray for our spouse? Are we coming to church? Is that a priority? Are we in community? Are we consistent? Are we merciful people? That's a tough one too, guys, if we're just being honest. I'm a justice person. Anyone else in here a justice person? Yes, yes. No, that's not always a good thing because I feel like I'm the one that needs to bring the justice. Someone's skipping line at Universal and I'm like, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go tell them. My wife's like, why? And I'm like, because you're not allowed to skip line, right? I'm waiting two, two hours for the Harry Potter ride. They should have to wait just as long, right? You get mad? You wanna go correct them? My wife, who's a holier person than me, is like, let it go. We'll get there. Are we merciful? Are we loving? Do we treat people the way that we want to be treated? That's a good question. And all of this is contingent on this last question. Are you and I at peace with God? And if you ask this morning, well, how do we, how do we become at peace with God? The first thing is, is we have to repent of our sin. We cannot be at peace with God When we are partaking in things that are in opposition, listen, to the Prince of Peace. If I am doing things in opposition to the Prince of Peace, there's no way I can be at peace. So we have to repent of our sin. We have to pray. And we have to live out the commands and principles of God. Here's the good news. We'll take communion here in a second. Everyone will be welcome to take that as long as. You have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin. The beautiful thing about God is if we will humble ourselves and say, Lord, I am sorry, I wanna turn away from that, we can be square with God instantly. And then we can start that journey. We pray, we talk to him, we read the word, we obey it. Simple, okay? So everyone can leave this building today unless you're too busy. We can leave this building today being completely square with the Lord, okay? Would you bow your heads with me? Let me pray for you real quick. Before I pray for you, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. If you are in here and maybe you're not a believer or maybe you're a new believer you got questions, Pastor Mike is up here on the right. He'd be more than happy to talk with you. We have men and women on both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for anything, they would be more than happy to pray with you. And then all the way around this room, Uh, wherever you see a lamp on a table and on the majority of the pillars in this room, there is bread and wine and that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, communion, the Lord's Supper. Like I said, everyone is welcome to take that. You can go back to your seat, do it with your family members, your friends, uh, by yourself, however you feel comfortable. The only stipulation for communion, according to the word though, is you have to ask for the forgiveness of any sin that might be in your heart, okay? Please be respectful of this. Please take a couple of minutes and just do this, all right? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for everyone in this room, God. I pray, Lord, that, that, that we make peace with you, God, that we create a relationship with you, God, that we are honest with you, that we repent when we fail, God and that we just trust you and walk with you, Lord. And if we will walk in peace with you, God, we will see all these things in our life. We'll see faithfulness. We'll see mercy. We'll see love. We'll see all these things. We'll see the ability to handle criticism and and how to be humble. All these things will naturally come, God. So Lord, I pray for all of us in this room that we would humble ourselves. Pray, God, that you would protect us and keep us safe. I pray that you'd keep your hand on us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.